Good morning, church family. Let me invite the little ones to see your teachers in the back as you go learn about Jesus uh, this morning. So thankful for the men and women of our church that labor to preach the gospel to the youngest among us. Thank you uh, for your service. Uh, my name is Joey Kraft. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And so I'm thankful that you are here with us this morning to open God's Word. And uh, I start with a question. The question is a simple question, but it reveals a lot. It's a question that we're asked when we're small kids, and it's a question that we ask small kids. It's a question that some of us have answered, and it's a question that some of us wonder if we have answered wrongly. It's a question that can shape what we think about ourselves. And it's a question that can shape what we think about others. It's a practical question, yet it's a deeply theological question. It's a question that's dangerous if it's ignored. And it's a question that's damaging if it's overemphasized. And it's a question we all have to answer. What is the question? It's this. What do you want to be when you grow up? Or, in the more sophisticated DC way, you meet somebody and what do you ask? What do you do? It's the question of work. It's an important question. So important that Scripture addresses it repeatedly. So important that if you were to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to heaven, you would see the thread of work woven through the tapestry of God's Word. And it's a question we'll consider this morning as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. So if you remember, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul reminds us of our identity, who we are because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Then in these final three chapters, Paul is then telling us, well, then how then should we live? And as spirit-filled Christians, we are called and empowered to live in unity and purity, to have our relationships marked not by selfish ambition, but mutual submission. Paul has shown us how this spirit-filled life adopts us into God's eternal family shapes Christian community, says something about marriage and family. And this morning, we'll see how the good news of Jesus impacts our work. So I hope you see what Paul's been doing in chapters 4 through 6. He's addressing the most foundational part of our lives and some of the hardest situations in our lives to show us that God and His Word has something good to say, no matter who we are and no matter where we are. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the text. God, we do come, and we submit ourselves to your good and powerful authority for our lives. Holy Spirit, take this word, apply it to our hearts, that we might see Jesus, we might savor Jesus, and we might labor for Jesus, until we see him face to face. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this you'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Well, depending on your translation, verse 5 will read something like slaves or bondservants or servants. Obey your earthly masters. And given all that might come to mind when we hear that word slave, this passage at the outset can be hard and make us uncomfortable. And there's a good God-honoring reason for that. Your hatred of slavery, your desire to end slavery is right in line with what the Bible teaches. The Bible condemns treating one race as more important than another. The Bible condemns treating people as if they were property and selling them. And so let's be clear, racism, oppression, exploitation, systematic injustice are contrary to everything God is. It lies about everything God's word says, and it distorts and denies everything the gospel does. When and where this passage or any other passage of scripture has been satanically twisted to support a wicked practice, It's repulsive to God, a denial of the gospel, an abuse of authority, and a rejection of all that the Christian faith upholds as good and beautiful. We cannot excuse or minimize the disgusting race-based, man-woman-stealing, image-of-God-denying, human-dignity-eroding chattel slavery that was practiced in the U.S. and in other countries in the 16th to the 19th centuries. And so sadly, by some who took the name of Christ. But let's not forget, beloved, it was Christians with a deep love for Jesus armed with Scripture that fought to eradicate the slave trade. And tragically, slavery in its various forms still exists today. And I thank God for organizations like IJM and Samaritan's Purse that are fighting to bring an end to human trafficking slavery. So let's be clear, any and every form, past or present, the Lord is never okay with oppression or exploitation at the cost of another human being. He's never okay with abuse or violation of another image bearer. And we shouldn't be either. So what do we do with this text? Do we just throw it out? Well, no, we need to be careful not to read our context and our history back into the Bible. There's not a one-to-one comparison of race-based chattel slavery or human trafficking to the bondservants Paul mentions here. Uh, These bondservants had certain rights. They sometimes, sometimes even voluntarily entered into this position. It wasn't desirable. But they could attain their freedom in some cases. And that's why if you were to go read 1 Corinthians 7 this afternoon, you would say, Paul would say, slaves, if you can get your freedom, go, go get it. And on top of that, let's remember what Paul has been doing. He wants the servant-master relationship to be transformed and shaped, not just by earthly freedom, but eternal family. 
So all throughout Ephesians, Paul's been highlighting this new spiritual family that those in Christ all have the same spiritual father. So even in this passage, beloved, see what Paul's doing. He's reminding masters they are equal with bondservants. There is no partiality with the Lord. In Christ, there is equality. You have come together as a blood-bought, spirit-filled family. He's calling Christians to live in the reality of family in Christ. And again, to be clear, this does not mean the circumstances for every bondservant were warm and wonderful. Sometimes their conditions were harsh and their masters were cruel in ways that I think sitting in an auditorium with air conditioning, we can't even begin to fathom. So this passage is calling for radical, gospel-fueled, counter-cultural obedience by bondservants and masters. But this passage is not instructing slaves facing daily torture, beatings and a denial of their human dignity, telling them to passively accept whatever comes their way. Behaving in humility and submission does not mean forsaking justice. Obedience in whatever form it takes must not forbid what God commands and obedience must not command or take part in what God forbids. So that's, again, not to do away the hardships of this passage. God is calling bondservants and masters and us, and us, to radical obedience because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So at the risk of being too simplistic, this text calls us to obey the God-given authority over us and use God-given authority entrusted to us to honor Jesus. So perhaps the closest thing that we can relate this to in our context is employee boss. But it also applies to students and teachers, volunteers and board members. Uh, We could even broaden it out to include the daily tasks the Lord calls us to any time, any time we are under authority or in authority. This passage has something to say about that. And so no matter where you are, the truths of this passage speak into our lives. They shape our motive, our attitude, and our perspective. So this passage teaches three truths that bring joy and freedom to our work. What are they? Let me give them to you, then we'll walk through them. Number one, remember who you work for is more important than what you do. That shapes our motive. Number two, realize who you work for shapes everything about how you work. That shapes our attitude. Number three, rejoice in the Lord who always rewards. That shapes our perspective. Let's walk through each one of these. Remember who you work for is more important than what you do. So as we read this passage, did you notice the repetition of Jesus? Every verse mentions Christ or the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 5, obey as you would Christ. Verse 6, work not as people pleasers, but as what? Bond servants of who? Christ, verse 7, render service as to who? The Lord, not to man. Verse 8, you'll receive back from the Lord. Then in verse 9, he points masters to the Lord. Knowing that he who is both their master, literally the Lord is Lord, their Lord, and yours is in heaven. 
So Paul is reminding both bondservants and masters that ultimately they work for King Jesus. And so I, when I say remember who you work for, I'm talking about a capital W who? Jesus. And so think about it, church. Think about the circumstance of these bondservants. If this applies to them, surely it has something to say to us. They were in less than ideal, harsh situations. And Paul says, all your work's to the Lord. And he looks at us and says, all your work is to the Lord. And so we cannot separate our work. Whether we're an employee, boss, student, teacher, supervisor, business owner, nonprofit, volunteer, or anything else, we cannot separate our work from our love for Jesus. Our daily task and responsibilities display something about our love for Jesus. Why? Because God owns it all. Work is not just something we do to make money or pass the time. Work is not just something we tolerate during the week and then show up here on Sunday and worship. Work is an original part of God's creation and plan. Do you know that, beloved? Has it been affected by sin? Yeah. Is it the result of sin? No. Will we experience frustrations? Absolutely. But that does not mean work isn't good. Well, what is work? I think work is a God-imaging gift that our Creator gives to us, His image bearers, that we might glorify His name and help humanity flourish. It's what work is. It's an opportunity and a responsibility to love God and love neighbor. So do you see what this means? In our work, we worship all week long. And did you know that in heaven we will work? In heaven we will work. As one author says, he says, Our final destination is not a workless utopia, but a renewed world in which we will work with infinite creativity and fulfillment. See, work isn't a temporary evil, but internal gift. In heaven, we will continue to work for the glory of God and the good of his people. And guess what? We get to bring heaven to earth. Ephesians 1.10, what is Jesus doing? He's uniting heaven and earth, and we display that now in our work. Work is not disconnected from our worship. Whatever we do, how do we do it? As to who? The Lord. God owns it all, and this means God gives meaning to it all. The meaning of our work is not determined by primarily what we do, but who we do it for. And we do it for the Lord who loves us and lavishes His grace upon us. That's why Paul can tell these bondservants to obey their masters. Their position has nothing to do with their worth. He's not saying like, hey, bondservants, what you really need to do is you need to become free. And then you need to become a master and advance like upon the chain. And then your, your work will really be meaningful. And then you'll have a lot of work and worth. That's not what he's saying. He's saying even as a bondservant, the lowest of the low, your work has worth. There's no such thing as a meaningless task or a worthless job as long as it's not inherently sinful. So the cook who makes 200 burgers in his eight-hour shift, the analyst who crunches numbers five days a week, the entrepreneur who develops five-year business plans, the stay-at-home mom who educates her children, all have value and dignity in the Lord's economy. And as a Christian, no matter what we do, we're working to the Lord. Do you see what this does? 
It brings the divine into the mundane. Everything matters to God. And so it should matter to us. And on the other side, we have to remember there's no such thing as a job that will give us lasting meaning. See, knowing who we are and whose we are helps us from seeing our work as meaningless and from seeking work for our meaning. You got that? It's both. Again, don't forget what Paul has already said here. First three chapters, who are we? In Christ, we're adopted into God's family. In Christ, we're redeemed by the blood. In Christ, we have obtained an eternal inheritance. In Christ, though we were dead in sin, in Christ, we've been made alive with Jesus. In Christ, we will receive immeasurable riches forever and ever and ever. What earthly job could add or take away from these eternal treasures? Paul starts chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God. Why? How? As beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. See what Paul has done? Before telling bond servants what they must do, he reminds them who they are. They are children of God. And the same is true for you. See, my daughters don't have to work to become my daughter. They're my daughter and I love them, regardless what their grades are. I love them. We have to have the same view of our work. So Paul wants to liberate the bondservants from thinking their worth is tied to their work. They're already beloved children. So Christian brothers and sisters, what's most true about you? What is most foundational to who you are doesn't change whether you have a job, whether you've been fired from a job, whether you're looking for a job. Your, your job title and your position is irrelevant to your worth. This city will tell you something different. Who do you work for? Our worth comes from who and whose we are, not what we do. Beloved, you have to get that. A couple of months ago, a man by the name of Derek Thomas, a writer for The Atlantic, coined a new term. Workism. The title of his article, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. Here's a quote. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. The article is summed up this way. For many, work has morphed into a religious identity, a promising transcendence in community, but failing to deliver. See, our culture... Let's be honest, it's not just the culture. Our hearts. Our hearts tend to find our identity based on worldly achievement. And so what do we do? We turn our desk into altars. And we sacrifice souls for performance, salaries, and titles. But for the Christian, we know our worth and identity is not tied to what we do. Because of our union with Jesus, our faith in Christ alone, we're children of God. We are loved, we are lavished, and as I like to say, He even likes us. Praise God. That's where our worth and our, our identity come from. This is so freeing. Like Paul says, 
We don't have to work as people pleasers. How freeing is that? We don't have to run the rat race proving ourselves to ourselves, and we don't have to run the rat race proving ourselves to someone else. When we do that, the, the goalpost ever moved down the line. And we get there and we're like, what's next? One more glance at email. One more missed meet, one more missed family meal because of that meeting. One more, one more degree will help. One more promotion will help. I'll move there. What's next? What's next? What's next? When that's our hope, we're empty and we're weary. Our, or our souls shrink. And we become pleased with a thimble of man's approval when God is inviting us to swim in the ocean of his favor. This is not theoretical for me. I graduated from the number one industrial and systems engineering school in the nation with highest honors. By the time I was 27, I was a national level manager for a Fortune 100 company making lots and lots of money, giving presentations regularly to C-level executives. At 31, I was a barista at Starbucks in Tinleytown, serving $4 lattes. At 40, I'm a pastor of this beautiful church. And here's what I can tell you. All those jobs have value. And here's what I can tell you. All of those jobs will fail to fulfill you. No job can bring the unshakable acceptance that we long for from somebody who knows us fully and loves us truly. Only Jesus can. Let me be clear. Our work is important. God says it is. It should be important to us. And I am not saying it is wrong to have a holy ambition. It's not wrong to have holy ambition, to to climb that corporate ladder, to work at that preschool, to to be a political leader, to organize that nonprofit, to work for that three-letter agency, to get that overseas posting, to excel at being a homemaker. It's not wrong to have a holy ambition. These can be good and God-honoring things, but we have to ask, why do we want what we want? See, the problem is not ambition, but idolatry. We can't vilify our work and we should not deify our work. For my friends that are tired of trying to justify yourself with your job, you're trying to prove your worth by what you do, can I invite you to come to Jesus? He's a good master. He's a good master. And you don't have to strive to earn his acceptance with earthly accomplishments. You only need to confess your failure to trust him and and trust that his accomplishment and his life and his death is enough for you. See, the approval you want so badly is not a bad thing. But it's only satisfied by loving Christ. You see, his work was perfect. Yet at the cross, he was forsaken by God. Why? So that even with our imperfect work, we could have fellowship with God. He's a good master. Will you come to him and trust in him? Restoration Church, let's remind each other. Work is good, but it is not God. In our community groups, in our discipline relationships, remind each other that we are freed from thinking that our work is without purpose. And we are equally freed from thinking that work provides ultimate purpose. 
I'm so encouraged by how many of you strive to do this with one another. It's a hard thing in this city. May God give us the grace to continue. Because here we have an imitation from God. He's saying, come labor. Ask to the Lord and be free. Our work does not have to give us meaning in order for it to be meaningful. So remember, beloved, who you work for is more important than what you do. And that gives worth to all you do. As we do that, let's realize who we work for shapes how we work. Realize who we work for shapes how we work. Look what Paul says to the bondservants. How are they to work? Look at the text, verse 5. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Okay, so Paul is not saying the bondservants should be cowering in fear before their masters. This is not about being scared and afraid. It's about showing honor and respect. If you were to track that phrase, fear and trembling, through the Bible, you would see it's often spoke of as the way we respond to God's authority. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, respect your boss's authority as if it was given to them by God. So to respect the master, respect the boss, those in authority over us, means we acknowledge their authority and we agree that they have it. We don't say things about them that we wouldn't say to them or haven't said to them. We don't selfishly grumble and complain about their leadership and then kiss up when they come back around. We respect them not necessarily because of their character, but of God's command. This is God's authority given to them. So the respect that Paul is talking about is not because of who they are, but because of who the Lord is. It's as to the Lord. So Paul calls bondservants and us to work respectfully and then also diligently. Obey how? With a sincere heart. As you would Christ, not by the way of eye services, people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. So he's telling the bondservants to perform their labor, to go about their tasks, not with some superficial mindset that aims to do the least amount of work possible and only truly working when the boss is around. He's saying, no, do all your work you're assigned to do and do it well. Work hard at all times, not just when someone is looking. No shortcuts, no bending the rules, no deceitfulness. The diligent worker doesn't need constant supervision just to get them to do their work. See, the diligent worker works just as hard when they're being considered for that promotion and when they've been passed up. The diligent worker works diligently because their aim is to please who? Who? God, the Lord. Paul says work respect, respectfully, work diligently, and excellently. Verse 6. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. So the bond servants are to perform their daily labors from the heart. Not a half-hearted effort, but the very best of their ability. Not holding anything back, but offering their service and skills with zeal, with eagerness, with excellence. You see what this means? We cannot reduce being a spirit-filled, God-glorifying, faithful Christian worker to smiling and talking about Jesus in our jobs. 
Our love for Jesus doesn't mean the only way we honor Jesus at work is by inviting our coworkers to church and sharing the gospel with them. Should we do that? I hope that you are. But honoring Christ is more than that. Honoring Jesus in our work respectfully, diligently, and when we work excellently with all integrity. We're called to work hard and we're called to work well. Martin Luther King said it this way in a speech. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep the streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. So it is with us. We may not be the best computer programmer. We may not be the best administrator or stay-at-home mother or lawyer or student. But you know what we all can do? We can all labor with an attitude that seeks to be respectful, diligent, and do excellent work for the glory of Christ and the good of our neighbor. So I'll tell my daughters often, I do not want you to get the best grades you can. I tell them, I want you to get the best God-honoring grade you can. There's a difference. There's a difference. And so it is in our work. We should get the, we should work to the best God-honoring abilities that we can. We may be the best. We may not. But as we do this, as we work or as we look for work, which is work in itself, right? All its various forms. He'll help us display the gospel and give opportunities to declare the gospel. It's one of the things Paul is concerned about. So what do you think would happen if you talk about how awesome Jesus is? And then you're known to be disrespectful, lazy, chronically late, gossiping, complaining, know-it-all, who takes credit for everything and takes blame for nothing. And you're like, well, let me tell you how great Jesus is. Don't sabotage your Christian witness with sloppy work. Don't sabotage your witness by disrespecting authority. The gospel frees you, beloved, from underworking and overworking. The gospel frees you from being idle, I-D-L-E, and making work an idol. Get this. Because you have the approval of God, the gospel frees you to help others succeed. Novel. The gospel frees you to admit you don't know it all. How freeing is that? The gospel frees you to admit when you make mistakes. So, let me remind you that you display Jesus and declare His goodness not just when you work excellently, but when you when you repent boldly in your mistakes at work. So we're going to mess up. Sometimes mess up is not going to be sin. It's just going to be because we're fallen humans and we don't do everything perfect. You don't have to repent of those things. You can confess them. But there's also going to be times when we sin at work. And we get to display the grace of Christ when we confess those things to our coworkers, to our boss. That's what we get to do. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, in your, in your jobs, at your work, wherever that is, at home, at school, at, at the volunteer place, at wherever it is, 
Take every opportunity to testify to the compassion, generosity, steadfastness, and authenticity of Jesus. Both when you exceed really well and when you don't. Work with a different attitude, knowing your righteousness comes from Christ alone. Let that be the aroma of Christ. And some of you are thinking, but what about, but what about my boss? They're really mean. What about the expectations on my schedule? They're really demanding. What about that coworker who lies in schemes to advance and get past me? What about? First, let's remember who Paul's writing to. Who's he writing to? Who? Bond servants. Bond servants. So before we offer caveats and explain this text away, we need to remember who Paul is writing to and what he's calling us to. He's calling us to radical, gospel-centered, spirit-filled obedience. He's calling bondservants to work respectfully, diligently, and excellently, not because of who their boss is, but because of who Jesus is. And the same is true for us. Yes, even when we face hard and unfair situations. Second, remember, Jesus is not calling you to do something he himself is unwilling to do. Second Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And it goes on and says, Jesus entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. Jesus knows what it's like to be treated harshly. Jesus knows what it's like to be treated unfairly. Jesus knows what it's like to have the schemes and lives of men hold him down. But he suffered that we might have hope. So Christian brother and sister, Jesus knows your situation. And we know, of all people, we know what it's like to be the undeserving one who receives the work of another, don't we? We know what that's like. Christ paid the penalty of our sin. And so let's not forget that Jesus died for all those times we deny God's authority or disrespect another human. He took that sin on himself and he died, but he did more. He rose again and he sent his spirit to indwell us that he might change us one degree of glory to another. And so now we get to show the gospel when we work, even for those who don't deserve it. We get to show the gospel when we work humbly with those who don't deserve it. Is that incredibly hard? Yes. Is it tremendously beautiful? Absolutely. Yet at the same time, let me say this. Do not overlook abuse or harassment. Do not overlook it. If and where it is, follow legal and company policies to report it. That honors God. And also, you shouldn't compromise God-given responsibilities like being a faithful father or mother or church member or disciple maker to endlessly work 60, 70 hours a week. Speak up. God honoring boundaries are appropriate. Your work is not your life. 
I know some of you had to do that with your bosses, and I'm so encouraged when y'all do that. And if your work situation is intolerable, you can look for something else. But work to the best of your ability until you find something else. Just because you disagree with your boss does not mean you get to disobey Jesus. Get counsel. Check your motives. Talk about it in community group. Invite others into the process. Let's walk together as God's people. But whatever the case may be, Scripture calls us to remember that working for King Jesus changes how we work. We work with a different attitude. Paul also addresses masters. Verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. So what does Paul mean when he says do the same to them? Well, just as bondservants are work as to the Lord and treat others respectfully and diligence and integrity, so should the masters. So everything he said to the bondservants, now he's saying, like, masters, this is for you too. So there may be a difference in roles, but not equality. Masters should use their God-given gifts and authority to love God supremely and serve and love their neighbor sacrificially. And Paul tells them, stop your threatening. In other words, don't throw around your authority and influence and power to intimidate those under your care. Because authority is not a license for tyranny. He tells them, uh, you have a master too, so act like it. No one is in absolute authority. All authority that we have is derived or borrowed authority from God. See, authority is a master or boss or any other capacity. is a responsibility given by God to be used for God. Responsibility or authority is never an excuse to be inconsiderate, cruel, or selfish. It's never those things. It's a responsibility. And so, Paul is addressing Christian masters here. I take that to mean there will be some Christians who are put in positions of authority. So, brothers and sisters, some of you are or will find yourself in positions of authority in your work, in your school, in that volunteer organization. And I praise God for this. We need men and women who love Jesus using their God-given authority and influence in powerful positions with gospel-fueled humility blessing those under them. This brings glory to God and flourishing to His image bearers. Listen, listen to the words of King David. Did David have a lot of authority? Oh, yeah. Over lots of people? You bet. And what does he say? This is him praying back to God. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. See what happens? Authority used rightly leads to flourishing. So brothers and sisters, wherever you have authority, wherever you have authority, use it to build up, not tear down. To right wrongs, not perpetuate them. To delegate, but not demean. To serve, but not be selfish. To help others succeed, not pad your comfort. For the Christian, authority should equate to responsibility and humility. And remember, Jesus is not calling us to something he himself is unwilling to do. Mark 10. 
And Jesus called to him, that is to his disciples. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why, Jesus? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See how Jesus used his authority? God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, the one who fashioned the stars in the sky, took on flesh and died on a cross that he might serve us. That's strength. That's true authority. And he's inviting us to follow him that we might display his grace to those under our care. So this week in your community groups, as you meet with other brothers and sisters inside the church, discuss areas where you've seen God's grace in your life, where you're working respectfully and diligently and excellently for the Lord. And give God praise where that's happening in your life. Praise God for it. Let me invite you to examine your heart as well. Maybe you need to repent to your coworkers, to a fellow classmate, to your boss. And if you're misusing authority, in the name of the Lord, I call you to repent. You do not have authority to serve yourself. So that may mean you need to repent to those under your care. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's what it frees us to do. So no matter where we find ourselves in this passage, we realize who we work for shapes how we work. That we work with a different motive and a different attitude and finally with a different perspective. Rejoice in the Lord who always rewards. Verse 8. Paul gives the motivation for the bondservant radical obedience. Who got it? Knowing that, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And then in verse 9, we see the motivation for masters. Knowing that, same word, knowing that, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. See what Paul's done? This entire section on submission, he's ended it by reminding us we're all the same. There's no partiality. Husbands and wives, children and parents, bondservants and masters are all equal before the Lord. So Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying from the most powerful person to the most vulnerable person, Paul is pointing them past earthly authority and temporary rewards to their heavenly master and eternal rewards. No matter our position, no matter our position, employee, employer, street sweeper, CEO, homemaker, student, teacher, all of us, stand before God, and there is no discrimination with the Lord. Some of us stand as sinners who will receive the due reward of their sin, eternal separation from God and all that is good. That's the reward apart from Christ. Others stand as sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ who will receive grace upon grace forever. So if you've not repented of your sins, you've not trusted in Christ, let me invite you to come to Him this morning that you might receive grace upon grace, 
Because here's the good news. We are not saved by good works. But we are saved for them. And every gospel-fueled work will be rewarded. Selfless service to God is not ignored or forgotten. Even though on earth, no one may, no one may never notice what you do. No one may never notice the work that you do. You may not even get paid for it. In fact, that's sometimes the most important work. But God sees. Notice that word. Whatever. Each and every work is seen by God. If the world doesn't value it, let it encourage you that God does value it. So no matter what we do, if we do it as unto the Lord, we will receive a reward. Remember 2-7, in the coming ages, God is going to show us in Christ the immeasurable riches of His grace. That means for all of eternity, God will never run out of fresh ideas of how to bless you and reward you for your work. That's amazing. It's not necessarily wrong to get compensation or rewards here on earth. It is wrong to find our identity in them. But even the best rewards on earth are like licking the spoon that was used to make the icing of the cake. It's just a taste. Why? Because the full deliciousness of heaven is just ahead. And then we will enjoy the fullness of our rewards. So, beloved, you will spend eternity in God's presence, with God's people, enjoying all of God's creation, all the beauty and creativity and wonder it was always meant to be, beholding the glory of the risen Lamb forever and ever. That's a good reward. So yeah, let's work hard today, but let's always keep our eye on that day. So what do you want to be when you grow up? It's an important question. But it's not an ultimate question. The good news of Jesus is that our work doesn't define us. He defines us. In Christ, we're fully and forever free. We're free to work hard and well. Remembering who we are is more important than what we do. And that shapes everything about how we work. And one day soon, beloved, one day soon, we'll see Jesus face to face. And we'll be rewarded for every good work done in His name. And we'll work forever in His presence, without the struggles of sin forevermore. That's a good reward. If you're looking for your identity and work, let me invite you to come to Christ this morning. He's a good master who will satisfy your soul forever as you glorify His name. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the ways it both encourages us and afflicts us. Holy Spirit, help us work as to the Lord in all that we do. That we might work hard on earth, but always keeping an eye toward heaven. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.